0: The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. What kind? Treatment. Treatment. Today on the lab report, we're going to interview Dr. Alex Hutchinson.
1: Physicist, author, endurance athlete, and a cool guy. I want to be him. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options. More effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Okay, you're right about the Chex Mix.
0: I told you. It's delicious. Chapman family recipe. It's delicious. It only requires several sticks of butter. (laughs) Well worth it. Hello.
1: Hey, Michael Chapman. Patty
0: Devers. By golly, how are (laughs) you?
1: I am living my best life today.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this program called The Lab Report, brought to you by Geneva Diagnostics. It's where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like
1: and by golly if you like this show you should probably go to itunes or spotify and subscribe to this show maybe rate and review leave us some stars some feedback there you like the
0: stars stars are awesome and by golly if you have additional feedback you can email that feedback to podcast at gdx.net dadgum
1: look at you with all your midwestern tomfoolery and the,
0: got a bunch of malarkey coming out of my
1: mouth <laughs> Well, today's show is not malarkey. It's great. Yeah. We are interviewing Dr. Alex Hutchinson, who's a physicist and now an author and journalist.
0: Yeah, that's quite the transition. Yeah. We should probably ask him about that.
1: Well, he talks a lot about limits. And I think it comes from his background of being an endurance athlete, like Mm -hmm. a marathon runner. Right. And that's so contemplative if you can consider the time that goes into that of just being in your headspace.
0: Yeah. I remember when I used to run a lot. Uh, did some mini marathons and things like that. And there's just something about, you know, the rhythmic nature of running. And it really just puts you into this sort of alternate space mm-hmm. um, that often, I think is like meditative in a lot of ways.
1: It's true and gives him a lot of time to think about different topics. And having that Ph.D. background in physics means he goes into the literature to really try to really further understand a lot of these topics and concepts. And he puts them in really interesting little sound bites. And so it's going to be a really fun interview, I think.
0: Yeah, let's just uh,
1: jump right into it. So Michael, Yes. We have Dr. Alex Hutchinson here. I'm aware. I'm super excited. <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit about Alex if you're not familiar. Dr. Alex Hutchinson is a physicist, award winning journalist, best selling author, and endurance athlete. Alex earned a PhD in physics from the University of Cambridge and did postdoctoral research working with the NSA. He subsequently pursued a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. A National Magazine award winning journalist, Alex writes about the science of endurance and fitness and has con- contributed to many publications including Runner's World, The New York Times, New Yorker, and many more. Currently, he is a contributing editor for Outside Magazine where he writes a column called Sweat Science and The Globe and Mail where he writes the Jockology column, and he's a senior editor at Canadian Running. Alex is also the author of several books, including Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, Fitness Myths, Training Truths, and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise, and Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions That Have Transformed Our World. His latest New York Times bestselling book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, explores the science of endurance and the brain's role in human performance.
0: Awesome. And with that, Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Patty Michael. I really appreciate the the opportunity to come and chat on the show. Great. Yeah. Well, Doctor Hutchinson, you made a pretty big leap from being a research physicist <laughs> to journalism. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> I have to ask, what <laughs> prompted that change?
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah you, 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 me, and my analyst are all wondering the same thing. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 interesting. Uh, so this this happened when I was uh, when I was twenty eight when I I was part way through a postdoc. Uh, as a physicist, when I when I decided to go to journalism school, and at the time I had v- essentially no journalism experience, so it was it wasn't like a known quantity to me. I'd been sort of contemplating the idea that it might be fun, but I'd never done an internship or anything like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'd I'd applied for a few things and hadn't gotten anything. Mm-hmm. So I, <laughs> I I left uh, left uh, physics and and went straight into a masters of journalism. As to why I did it, uh, you know, it was I just had this. It, sort of instinct that or intuition that I wasn't perfectly matched in physics, that, that a lot mm-hmm. of my lab mates were really passionate about the research we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, more so, you know, we'd spend 16 hours in the lab and then they'd come in the next morning and say, hey, did you read that article in physics today? And I'd like, mm-hmm. no, I, w- I went <laughs> home and I, 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 the last thing I wanted to do was physics. Right. So I thought there was something else out there for me. And, and I, in hindsight, I think journalism did turn out to be the right the right call.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, kudos to you. That's pretty brave, actually. Yeah. And I would assume having that PhD background Helps with your current writing, because you write about science a lot.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I've written very, very few articles on like Newton's laws or, or you know, general <laughs> relativity or anything that I studied <laughs> in, in, in university. And, and and the truth is, someone asked me what I did my PhD on a, 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 few, a few months ago, and I was like, that's a good question. I, I can barely remember. I can barely <laughs> explain it. It's, it's so, in, some, in one sense, it's, it's very different uh-huh. uh, and very distant. But in another sense, it's it's absolutely you know right on the ball. And in terms of not in terms of the specific things that I learned or was tested on, but in the the frame of mind uh, of of questioning and looking for evidence and and organizing uh, you know arguments logically and all those sorts of things, which I think you, you, like like you don't need a, a Ph.D. to to think scientifically, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that was, I think my, my pursuit of physics was a reflection of, of yeah. the desire to think that way. And it helped train me to think in a certain way that I've then brought to journalism. Yeah. Right.
1: And even approach and challenge other articles or, or writings that you see from PhDs. So you have a critical mind as well.
2: Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it is interesting. Maybe actually, it's almost a, it's, it's sort of less direct, but I, I don't mind asking people about, I, I'm not necessarily as intimidated as I might otherwise be when I see a, a, a scientific article that I don't understand. Because as a physicist, I, I spent you know seven years every day I came to work and I and I knew that I wouldn't understand half of what was going on. Uh-huh. And so and, and you know like the, you know seminar weekly seminars were just often just it's the nature of the beast. It's it's like there was a lot of stuff I didn't understand. So now I can read an article about health or fitness and I may not understand that and I, I, I'm fine. Plowing through a paper, reading it, even if I don't understand everything, then talking to the scientists and being and admitting, "Hey, look, I don't understand this. Uh-huh. Can you explain it to me? Can you explain it to me again?" and and not feeling that I have to pretend that I know something that I, I didn't, because I feel like it's okay. I, I don't I don't I don't need to posture or pretend to be something I'm not. And and I think going through that physics process, which is a, you know in some sense a very humbling uh, intellectual mm-hmm. journey, because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. really hard. I think that that's been helpful, not in, in that sort of indirect way yeah
0: yeah absolutely. Well, you know, being an endurance athlete yourself, it makes sense that your writing focus is in the science of sports. And in your book, endure, you discuss limits, both physical and mental as it relates not only to sports, but why do you think challenging ourselves is so difficult for many of us?
2: yeah, that's it's funny. I, I actually just int- finished a book that's it's going to be published uh, later this month by Daniel Lieberman, who's uh, an evolutionary anthropologist at Harvard. He's most famous as huh. the, the guy who proposed that um, humans were, were quote unquote born to run wow. uh, that, or, or, or he was one of the people who proposed this idea that a lot of our, our the features of modern humans uh, came about because we were very good runners back on, you know, on the Savannah chasing down uh, kudus and things like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. thank the, the, <laughs> his, new, his, his new book is called exercise and he, and I can't remember the subtitle, but it's something along the lines of like, wh- why it's something that's so good? Why, why we have, wh- or why we were never evolved to do something that yet, yet is so good for us? And and one of the questions, actually, he, he talks a lot of different questions, of this sort of like, why is it that if we, you know, we should be exercising, for example, why do we? Is it so hard for us to to to, ch- to push ourselves right. and to 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 experience discomfort? And without you know oversimplifying the the, the evolutionary lens. Um, it, 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 makes a lot of sense if you think about the, the, the forces that, that acted on our, our, ancestors that would, you know, make it very beneficial to have a strong impulse not to waste energy right. because for the vast majority of human history, energy was very scarce and you couldn't just, you didn't want to have people just sort of, uh, fidgeting around or, or doing random things with no purpose and wasting energy. Mm. So I, I, think that, that, that is something we have to grapple with today because we, um, you know, we have a very, very strong impulse not to, not to uh, push ourselves, not to, to, to uh, you know, waste energy. And yet, on another level, we really need to, uh, I think both you know, f- physically but also psychologically, I think there's something really important about exploring our limits and feeling discomfort and, and being able to, to be comfortable with that that makes yeah. sense
1: evolutionarily speaking. Yeah. But then even, you know, we often think about our body as like a car, which can eventually then run out of gas. So how much of a person's physical limitation is physical versus that mental perception of a limit?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, as you, as I, I'm i sure you can guess that the, there isn't a, I, I can't put an exact number on it, mm-hmm. but it's, I guess what I would say is, is, um, so I competed as a, as a, as a, as an endurance athlete for, for a couple of decades, you know, very seriously. And when I was running a race and if someone beat me and I was trying hard, then it was just that person was faster than me. And there was, you know, my body had done everything it could do, Mm -hmm. but below the surface of that sort of superficial understanding, there was also, there was always a sort of, and I think anyone who's, who's run or has competed in any sport has this sense that it's not always quite that simple. Sometimes you have magical days, and sometimes you have terrible days and it's not always easy to figure out it's like well it's not just oh i had a good sleep last night or something like that sometimes you're able to do things under certain circumstances you know a big big game or something like that or a big competition that you that seem totally out of out of keeping with what you thought your limits were and and you know to get to the point my my current understanding based on the the sort of I guess the the over the last 15 years or so, there's been a sort of rethinking among scientists about the nature of limits. That, of course, we have physical limits. Yes, mm-hmm. th- there's only so much your body can do. Right. It's not mm-hmm. just all in your head. Right. But 99.9% of the time, when you are doing something and you feel like, okay, this is as fast as I can go, as far as I can go, I need to step off the treadmill. That's a protective mechanism built in by to your to your brain that is saying it's not that you your legs can't continue, it's that you shouldn't continue. Uh, for your own self-preservation, to because because back on the Savannah, you didn't want to be the guy who chased the kudu until you keeled over because right. uh, <laughs> you wouldn't make it back to the campfire that night. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the percentage is uh, it's hard to put a percentage on mind versus body. But I think in most contexts, when you think you can't keep going, that's that's a construct of the brain more than a, a, a real limitation in the body.
1: And, you know, yeah. I, I think about the whole idea of the four minute mile, how it was such a hard thing to achieve. And now it's far more common because it's been done. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's that's sort of the it's a it's a classic example of something where, you know, the first four minute mile was run by a guy named Roger Bannister, um, the guy who it looked like was going to do it was a guy named John Landy, uh, an Australian who had actually six times come within two seconds of breaking it, mm-hmm. and he, he there's some famous quotes from him where he told the reporter, I just don't think it's possible. It's a brick wall. It can't be done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, and three weeks later. John Landy broke the four-minute mile. So as soon as it had been done, oh, he he went yeah. went out and did it by by three seconds. And I think there's lots of examples of um, the sort of the floodgates opening once one person demonstrates something is possible. And I think that's one of the reasons that even though you know humans haven't evolved in the last 50 years, um, and of course technology plays a role, but I think that's one of the reasons that that records in pretty much every athletic event you can think of keep getting a little bit faster and a little bit faster. Because as soon as one person does something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of humanity knows that, well, if that's possible, of course we can go, you know, 0.1% faster than that.
0: Hmm. Well, and one of the signals that you're alluding to that's kind of like a, a feedback signal is pain, right? When, we, when we're when we talking about athletic performance. And so where's the line between pain as like a danger signal or just pushing someone beyond the comfort zone?
2: Yeah, pain, pain is a really fascinating one. Um, I, I, I think... W- one of the big, big differences between, say, an experienced athlete or someone who exercises regularly and someone who's, let's say, just trying to start an exercise program, getting on, you know, trying to run their first K or, or first five K or something like that, mm-hmm. is their relationship to pain and and their understanding of their ability to read those distinctions. As you're talking about between what what's what's an actual you know what 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 when does pain indicate a problem and when is it just kind of like you know, the, the door beeping to tell you your car door is open. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's not a disaster. It's just letting you know that something's going (laughs) on. And, and I think if, when you do think about people who are going and and who are starting exercise for the first time, let's say they're starting something like running and the first few times they they try running and they get out of breath and their legs are starting to hurt. I mean, they they honestly and truly have the sensation that they're on the verge of a heart attack or that something bad is happening, that they have to stop. They can't keep going. Mm -hmm. And you fast forward six months and yes, they're fitter. Yes, their body has changed, but they're also willing to tolerate a much level, higher level of discomfort and distress because they know that, oh, this is just the warning signal. I, I, I can leave the warning light on for a little, little while. It's not, I'm not going to die. This is just telling me that I can't keep doing this forever. Mm. So I think that's a really important lesson that people learn over time. And as they become quote unquote experts, um, pain becomes not quite such a distressing thing or discomfort it's 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 a signal it's a source of information and and you can think you know obviously a, a buzzword these days is mindfulness and it's like another way of expressing mindfulness is non-judgmental self-awareness hmm. and if you can get to that point where you're aware of signals like pain and discomfort in your body but you're not judging them you're not you're viewing them as information rather than as a sort of four alarm fire then that is a really helpful in sport, but also in life.
0: You know, we have a lot of, uh, we got the new year coming up and we, I anticipate a lot of people are going to, you know, start their new programs and things like that around the new year. And I'm just wondering, are there some kind of practical tips? Are there things that you do to help you push yourself, um, beyond what kind of the natural instinct is?
2: Yeah. You know, there's a, so the first thing I would say is that ultimately, no matter what anyone, including me says, there are no real shortcuts, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no button you can push, no pill you can take. Um, the, the best, the single best thing you can do is, um, expose yourself to discomfort and that will teach you to, to handle it. And, but the important thing is, is you really have to be patient with yourself, especially in the context of, you know, we're talking like new year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. I think a, a really important sort of cliche or, or, or uh, you know dictum to keep in mind is that most people really overestimate the, um, how much what they can do or how much progress they can make in the short term mm. but underestimate what they can do in the long term. Yeah. Mm. So they're thinking I want to be I want to achieve this goal, I want to run my first 5k in six weeks and that may prove to be unrealistic and and lead to a sort of a regression because they, they end up getting hurt or, or discouraged. whereas if they're thinking if they take it a little slower, the, the progress they can make over the course of a year or two years is just way below, beyond what they might ever have imagined. So, so my first piece of advice is, uh, uh, you know, for the, in terms of the new year, is, is just go out there, um, experience discomfort. Like let's, if, if I was advising someone on how to start running, I would say, you know, go out and run for a minute, get out of breath, and then stop and walk. And don't, don't feel you need to run for 20 minutes. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's going to take you three months before you can run for 20 minutes at a stop. So, so don't, don't, don't get greedy and try and do too much, but also do get out of your comfort zone, even if it's only for a minute at the end of each run, uh, you know, or each run walk at when you're starting.
1: Yeah. That's and that's, you know, it, it brought to mind when you're talking about pain and, and discomfort, how can you counsel someone around their perception of pain and pain tolerance? Is that a, a brain thing?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> There, there There is no objective way of measuring pain, right? right. Like, I, yeah. I, 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 every, anyone who experiences pain, that's real. and then there's no uh, there's there's no um you know you can't you can't apply the pain meter and say, well, you say your pain is eight out of ten, right? Yeah. My, <laughs> my meter tells you that tells me that you're only experiencing <laughs> six out of ten. If, if they're experiencing eight out of ten, it's eight out of ten. Now, the the thing is it as a fundamentally subjective experience, it can be influenced by all sorts of things. And, and there's there's fascinating research on, um, you know, I just wrote about a study where they, for instance, where they were testing exercise-induced analgesia, which is this idea that when you do a workout, your pain tolerance and pain sensitivity hmm. will be a little, uh, you, you'll be a little more resistant to pain after the workout than you were before because you've got all sorts of brain chemicals swirling around, uh, you know, whether it's endorphins or endocannabinoids or whatever. And what they found is they could more or less abolish this, This is a well-known phenomenon. You're more resistant to pain after exercise. All you have to do is is tell people in a couple of sentences before the workout, if you say, oh, by the way, um, we're going to repeat this pain tolerance test after the workout, and you'll probably do a little worse on it because that's what happens after exercise. And then that turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So people are highly suggestible to whether they should or shouldn't experience pain. Mm -hmm. And there's also all sorts of links just in terms of psychological uh, traits and states that People who are worried about pain, people who have fear, like and this happens when people ha- are coming back from injuries or from from physical problems. Um, you know, they've, the knee has been bad. They're worried that if they move it in a certain way or if they push it too hard, the pain is going to come back, and so they're they're hypersensitive to the possibility of getting pain in their knee, and so. And so they experience it every, you know, you can just, you know, blow on them and then say, Oh, that hurts because (laughs) they've become uh, hypersensitive to it. And again, it's not that they're not experiencing that, but Mm -hmm. it's that the, 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 the the traits of anxiety and fear of pain, all these things predict how much pain, even if you, if you apply exactly the same stimulus to people, if they're, if they're worried about pain, they're going to feel it. So the, I think that, that um, it's, it's challenging, but it also, gives scope for clinicians to to think very carefully about the way about the language they use with patients um, in framing how, how they should expect to feel you know over the course of a treatment or if they're re- rehabbing from something that if they uh, if they're expecting and fearing pain that's a problem and on the other hand there's there's other research that says if you can frame the pain as something that's beneficial if you tell people this is probably going to hurt but that's a sign that it's it's it, it's doing what it's hmm. supposed to that that you're you're making progress. Then they're able to endure, you know, twice as much pain. They're 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 happy about it because the pain is telling them yes. Huh. But I mean, and this goes of course goes back to then Michael's point about how do you distinguish between uh, pain as a as a warning signal that you can maybe ignore and and as a serious uh, indication of a problem. So there, there you do have to be. You you don't want to create people who are who just ignore pain, especially in the context of rehabbing from an injury or, or something like that. So it does be there's no simple rule of thumb that that tells Mm -hmm. you this pain is good and that pain is bad. So it takes some, some experience and some guidance.
1: And and that makes sense. I mean, our audience is mainly functional medicine clinicians and they're working with patients to encourage movement. And to Michael's point, the new year's coming up behavioral change. And so in counseling them in how to deal with a non-athlete, just starting to exercise and teaching them where their limits are, is it things like that? Like the framing of the words they're using and, you know, just, you know, teaching the mindfulness to find their own limitations.
2: I, I think that can play a big role. I mean, I don't think it's it's it. it <laughs> words alone are pr- probably not enough, but okay. but uh, but yeah. In in terms of, uh, yeah, like making people understand that discomfort is okay mm-hmm. and that that uh, and, and in some sense is desirable, it could really help people people embrace it and not be discouraged by the fact. It doesn't mean that they're hopeless if they're out of breath after thirty seconds or or if they're little sore, this is part of, you know, I mean, thinking about stuff like delayed onset muscle soreness, let's say someone who hasn't exercised much before, they Mm -hmm. might get sore the next day, even after a very minor uh, workout. If you can frame that to them as, you know, after you do this, you might be sore the next morning. That's a great sign because Mm -hmm. it means that your your muscles are being broken down and, and rebuilt stronger and more resilient and you won't feel as much soreness the next time. That, that then you wake up the next morning and it's like yeah I did work out hard enough to get some benefits and my muscles are being remodeled as opposed to oh boy I'm falling apart and, <laughs> and getting too old and this right. is, you know like <laughs> it's easy to fall into that cascade
0: of negative thoughts right. yeah right I often have this wonder because um, we were talking about you know evolutionarily there's sort of this impulse to not waste energy but it also seems like so often today there's the impulse to uh, be more sedentary in a lot of ways right. and to not push yourself and so it just makes me wonder like do you think that there is uh, something either genetic or from an environmental standpoint that, that makes some people more prone or more drawn to pushing themselves than others?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, th- and this kind of makes, it, it's, it's a real minefield for, for exercise prescription because most of the people who end up like, like, and I include myself in this people who end up writing articles about how wonderful exercise is and, and how everyone should do it. And it's not that hard. And once you do it, you'll love it. Um, th- th- for for obvious reasons, those are people who tend to love exercise and, right. <laughs> and have enjoyed it. And, and 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 not everyone is like that. Uh, I don't think that I don't think it's it's not like you know some people are from Mars and others are from Venus or whatever. It's it's not a huge difference. But there are undoubtedly differences in how people respond to exercise. How people and just like there are differences in how people respond to to anything. And you know the the classic demonstration of this is with mice. If you take a group of mice. Uh, and you give them a, a an exercise wheel. Some of them will run more than others. So you say, okay, I'm going to take the, the the quarter of the, the, the mice that ran the most, and I'm going to breed them with each other. And I'm going to take the mice that ran the least, and I'm going to breed them with each other. And then you repeat that experiment over you know 12 generations. And by the end, you have some mice that will just go and run you know basically every minute they're awake, mm-hmm. and you have other mice that won't touch the the exercise wheel. And and it's just based on uh, you know apparently you know genetic factors in, you know, I I don't want to pretend I know the brain chemistry, but things like dopamine and how how it's processed in the brain that, that convince people that they do or don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. So we have to be sensitive to that. I think we have to understand that, that just, just because I love something doesn't mean if, you know, if someone else doesn't love it, it's not necessarily because they're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. So you, you hope to find ways that, um, you know, there are, there are a lot of different ways to be active. Some are more vigorous than others. Some are more individual or group oriented. Some are indoors, some are outdoors. There's, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different approaches to exercise. There's not one way that's right. And without, you know, being, making it too much of a cop you want to find what works for that individual, right. even if it's maybe not what you think is the perfect exercise program or the one that you would choose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The recurrent frame here in functional medicine is it depends. Every person's different. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of fits right in that paradigm. It's, it's a
2: very good frame.
0: <laughs> well, I also happen to notice that Malcolm Gladwell wrote the foreword to this book into our, how did you get to know him such that he's championed the book and, uh, contributed to it?
2: Yeah, that was certainly a, a stroke of enormous mm. uh, luck and good fortune and, and graciousness on his part. Um, the connection is there's two, two connections. One is that, He's a runner and I'm a runner. And that makes us members of the same, you know, pseudo religion. Right. Um, so th- that helped. And I know he's a big, he's a big track fan. You know, that's been something that's been, he's, if you look at his stuff on Twitter or whatever, you, you'll notice he's, he's, take, he's he's paying attention to running. Mm-hmm. He, um, he's not just a, a casual guy. He's a, he's a, he's a running nut. He's also from Ontario in Canada, which is the same province that I'm from. He's like the 1978, uh, junior age category, high school, fifteen hundred meter Ontario champion. Um, hmm. As it happens, I'm uh-huh. the 1991 uh, same age category, Aww. same geographic area, 50, same event, fifteen hundred meter champion. So I had a bit of an in to to, <laughs> right. to sort of make a make a connection with him. And I, you know, actually, I, I I'm, I'm do selling selling the story a little bit short. Um, probably the first emails that Malcolm and I exchanged were because I wrote a, a an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Uh, basically, calling him out and criticizing him. <laughs> for, oh, for way something to start a friendship! About, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 about about do- he'd written something about uh, drugs and sport that I disagreed with, and so I wrote an op-ed and I said, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says this, but here's Whoa. why he's wrong. And and to Malcolm's credit, and I think this is a a re- uh, actually one of his his sort of uh, strengths and and hallmarks is that once when, when you know when I wrote that he was wrong, he didn't say, well, this little whippersnapper, uh-huh. uh, I'm going to ignore him or I'm going to you know. <laughs> him a new one Mm -hmm. he emailed me and said you know that's interesting and and have you thought about this and we 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 exchanged a few emails and so we had a few exchanges like that over the course of a year or two and so when i ended up writing the book i uh you know when i was done my first draft I, i summoned up my courage and i sent him an email and said look i know you get a billion of these requests but is there any chance you'd be willing to to write like a one sentence blurb uh that we could stick on the cover Oh, or, or and I think maybe in the email or uh, or even a short intro or something like that. Yeah. And I didn't hear back from him for like six mm-hmm. weeks or something and I, you know, I was not surprised at all. And then I got back a, a, a one-line email saying how short is short? <laughs> 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 and, uh, and I... Uh, I wrote back saying, if it's two words long, I'd be, you know, abjectly grateful. And, mm-hmm. and right. yeah, he said, ah, I'll write a 700 word intro. So and super nice thing by, yes. you know, at, th- at that point, I, I, I had met him once in my life. And uh, so it was extremely generous of him.
1: That That's was awesome. great. I mean, it's a great book. We've yeah. both read it. It's great.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to say thank you so much for our time. I have one more question, and it's a little bit off topic, but we do this hmm. with our guests. It's called a fireball question. Um, Uh-oh. And uh, <laughs> I know this you know, is probably not something that you indulge in all the time, but um, I'm just wondering, do you happen to have a favorite sandwich? My
2: favorite sandwich. Oh, yeah, this is a. I, I can I can hit this one out of the park, <laughs> okay. um, uh, and this will cause outrage and screaming and, and angst among the the masses. Um, my favorite sandwich ever since I was about like five years old was peanut butter, cheese, and honey, uh, uh-huh. all in a nice piece, nice whole wheat. Bread. I, when I was a kid, I thought it was very clever because I came up with the name. I called it the Tripleicious because it was <laughs> three things that I loved. And I've taught it to my my kids are four and six now, and I've taught them about the Tripleicious. I, I, I know it's not fancy, it's not artisanal, it's not you know hipster, but I tell you, uh, you know, if if you're if you've got a craving for some calories in the middle of the morning, that'll that'll fill you up. That's I love ama- that so much. I've never thought about the combination of I peanut love butter that so and much. cheese. That's so great. And honey, <laughs> take take it to the bank. It'll it'll change your life if, if you approach it with an open mind. There goes the rest <laughs> I'll, of I'll our afternoon. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's not the usual, it's not the usual combination. Right? It's
1: amazing. Well, Dr. Alex Hutchinson, we can't thank you enough for spending the time with us. And we're going to encourage all of our listeners to check out some of your writing on outsideonline.com his sweat science column, Jockology, which you can find on Globe and Mail, and to check out this book, Endure: Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And we can't thank you enough, Alex. Yeah, thank Thank you so much. Thanks, Patty. And thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. Well, that was awesome. And really thought-provoking, actually, if you can consider that some of our physical limitations are actually set by our perceptions and our brain and can be pushed.
0: Yeah. And I I also really appreciate what he said about um, muscle soreness Uh and, you know, the way that we think about that, It, it reminds me, you know, oftentimes when I'm... Have maybe done something, pushed myself past my own physical limitations, like uh, you know, just rake rake the leaves in my yard.
1: Hang on, you're, are you comparing his discussion on the four minute mile to you raking the leaves yeah. in your yard? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: or you know, like a family dance party, and I'm like, right. man, whew, my quads are s- tight the next day. <laughs> but you know, I, I wake up and I'm like, hey, I did something.
1: See, it's all how you frame that that expectation. Speaking of expectations, yeah. We just spent a half hour speaking with a physicist, and you didn't ask him about black holes.
0: Yeah, I see it as a missed opportunity. But, you know, I (laughs) thought about the listener, and I was like, the the listener is here to learn about functional medicine, and most specifically biochemistry. Mm, And I I don't want to load them down with a bunch of jargon, (laughs) like conservation of energy or string theory. Mm -hmm. You know, like, uh, it's not the place for that.
1: This is the place for the triple
0: That's right. Next time on the Lab Report, Patty and I take requests to sing your favorite holiday carols. Wait,
1: wait, what? Did Did I I agree to that?
0: Yeah, it's in the contract.
1: I gotta go check that. You've been listening to the Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at net.
0: Do you have a favorite holiday, Carol?
1: I have so many. Really? I do. But I'm going to tell you, I'm embarrassed to tell you the cheesiest one that just gets me so excited every year.
0: Jingle Bell Rock?
1: No. <laughs> Mariah Carey. All oh. I want for Christmas. Uh. Makes me jump up and down and scream. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. How about you?
0: Uh... I think I'd have to go with the Christmas song.
1: Like chestnuts on an open fire?
0: Yeah, it's just got such a pretty melody.
1: You're like a sentimental type, huh?
0: Uh, you wouldn't know it, huh?
1: Yeah, it just says everything about me, jumping around like a crazy woman, and you're looking at chestnuts roasting on an open fire.
0: Contemplative. Mm. Poetic.
1: Mm-hmm. No fun.